This is Religion and Theology, a podcast from the Center for Theology and Religious Studies. This is the final part where we re-podcast past lectures held by honorary doctors at the Joint Faculties of Humanities and Theology at Lund University. And this time, we will listen to Robert D. Resnick. And just like the previous episodes, I hand it over to Martin de Grell of HT Samtal to give the introduction. My name is Martin de Grell. At the doctoral conferment ceremony of 2018, the Faculty of Theology at Lund University appointed two honorary doctors, Professor Elias Bongba and Robert D. Resnick. On May 24th, they both visited the faculty and held open lectures. We will now hear Robert D. Resnick's lecture entitled Voices from the Holocaust, the story of the Ravensbrück Archive. Robert D. Resnick is a real estate entrepreneur and philanthropist. He chairs the Ravensbrück campaign of the Lund University Foundation. And as you will hear in this lecture, he was an exchange student at Lund University in the early 1970s and has over the years worked for the university in various capacities within the context of the Lund University Foundation. Robert D. Resnick's most important contribution to Lund University involves the digitization of the Ravensbrück archive at the university library. Thanks to his personal contribution and his persistent work in attracting donations to this project, the library has been able to digitize and translate into English large parts of the archive, thereby making it accessible to a wide circle of researchers and a keen general public through a web portal. This is Honorary Dr. Robert D. Resnick, recorded at Lux on May 24th, 2018. I really struggled with what I would say today. Not being an academic, I don't have original research or books that I've written. So I thought it might be an interesting approach to share a series of narrative stories with you stories not only about the Ravensbrück Archive Project, but also about my personal journey that might help explain why I feel that it is almost an inevitable convergence of my life's work in support of the Jewish people and my lifelong relationship with Lund University. But before I get to that, I'd like to say a few words on a topic that is very elusive, but very near and dear to my heart, Jewish humor. (laughs) (laughs) I'll start with a very quick but true story. As president of Kehillat Israel, the only times I got to address the entire 3,000 member congregation were from the Bima at High Holy Days. And on the last of these occasions, uh, not too long ago, I told the congregation that I was feeling a little remiss because all of those presidents that had gone before me had been so charming 
and shared such personal funny stories and made everybody laugh. And I, on the other hand, had always chosen to talk about serious issues we were facing that I thought could affect us for generations to come and that uh, we were addressing and to tell them what we were doing about it. So you can only imagine whose speeches they probably liked better. <laughs> and so um, on Cole Nidre of 2016, my last time addressing the entire congregation, I told them that I was going to take a shot at it and try a little Jewish humor and that I had spent two full days Googling Jewish humor, <laughs> which was my biggest laugh line of the day because they probably thought, okay, if this guy had to Google Jewish humor, it's probably not going to be very good. <laughs> and the sad truth was that after two days of Googling, I really couldn't find anything that was both funny and appropriate. So being a determined guy, I kept going and I finally found one. So let's see what you think. This Jewish father took his young kids to the Jewish War Memorial in Washington, D.C. And smiling proudly, he said to them, look around, every single one of these brave young Jewish men and brave young Jewish women lost their lives in the service. And his youngest daughter looked up at him, completely horrified, and asked, Rosh Hashanah or Yom Kippur? (laughs) Well, thank you for indulging me. I feel much better now, and as my wife likes to tell me when I tell jokes, I'm usually the only one who feels better afterwards. (laughs) So let me begin by telling you what a truly humbling experience and a time for great reflection today is for me. And that at some level, I feel truly undeserving of this great honor. Because for all of the important work that has been done, there's so much more that remains undone. So I will dedicate this high honor today to all of the oppressed peoples of the world who continue to suffer and for all of those who have committed their lives to achieving greater justice, human rights, and dignity for all. And I pledge to each of you personally to continue doing my utmost to live up to this esteemed title by redoubling my own efforts to make a difference in the lives of others. The first story I'd like to share is about the journey that led me here today. It did not begin on a flight a few days ago. As Professor Morit said, it began when I was a 19-year-old student at the University of California, Berkeley, looking not only for new life experiences, but also for ways to make better sense of a world in conflict. It was 1971, the Vietnam War was raging, and what drew me to become one of the University of California's first ever foreign exchange students at Lund was not only its world-class academic reputation, consistently ranked amongst the best, but also the well-known traditions, idealism, 
and core values of the Swedish people. And as a stranger in a foreign land, I was so warmly welcomed into the homes, into the lives, and into the hearts of so many kind people here in Sweden. And I really did soon begin to see the world quite differently. It also soon became clear to me that I was not here just to complete one academic year, but to create a lifelong relationship with the Swedish people and with this great university. And I cannot overestimate the impact that Lunds Universitet has had on me personally and on the lives of so many others. Okay, most of Taka Lund for Deoxo. The next story began on May 6th, 1919. In northeastern Poland, along the Bug River near Bialystok, in a small shtetl named Simiatice. Most of you probably know that shtetl is Yiddish for the small Jewish villages that once dotted Eastern Europe. Founded in the 15th century by the Grand Duchy of Lithuania, Simiatice, like so many other shtetls, had suffered many invasions throughout the centuries, including even the Swedish invasion of Poland in 1655. And it was occupied many times by many armies, perhaps most notably by the Cossacks of the Russian Empire in 1807. And by the end of the 1800s, Simiatice had a population of 4,600, roughly about 75% of the entire population. And it also was beginning to be subjected to the violent anti-Jewish pogroms becoming so prevalent in the Russian Empire and spreading rapidly to other regions of Europe as well. And so on that fateful day, May 6th, 1919, less than one year after Poland had finally gained her independence and formed her second republic, Herman and Minnie Resnick gave birth to their third child, my father, Hyman Eugene, of blessed memory. Reznice means butcher in Polish, and true to form, Herman was a kosher butcher which apparently saved his and his family's lives because while he was providing kosher meat to the Polish army, they were protecting his family from the continuing pogroms. And yet when the threat to his family finally became too much to endure, Herman used his savings to buy tickets to the new world for his family. So in 1921, with little more than the clothes on their backs, the Reznice family set sail for New York. My father was two years old, and none of the children spoke anything or understood anything but Yiddish. After being processed through Ellis Island, they began the long journey overland to Los Angeles to open a kosher butcher shop in Los Angeles, start their new life, and to become the first Resnicks in the phone book. And just about that same time, about 400 kilometers away, 
a young woman named Helen Kuchevsky was living in Vilnius, now the capital and the largest city of Lithuania, while then a thriving center of Jewish intellectual and religious culture with over 100 synagogues and nearly half of its population Jewish, Vilnius also at that time was experiencing growing and increasingly severe forms of anti-Semitism. After spending six months in hiding in the basement of her home with her father Chaim, a respected synagogue cantor, her mother Leah and her siblings, with nothing to eat or drink during that time other than potato peelings and water, Helen decided enough was enough for her as well. So her sister Mary, already in New York, sent two tickets and Helen left her family and her childhood home and everything she knew to set out with her youngest brother Samuel on foot, on horseback, and by any other means of transportation available on the long trek to Rotterdam, Holland, also to set sail to America. In New York in barely 20, Helen fell in love with an older Russian immigrant named Sam Kaplan, and they eloped to California where they bought a chicken ranch and became, if not the very first, one of the very first Jewish families to settle in Riverside, California. And on November 13, 1925, Helen and Samuel gave birth to my mother Anne. When World War II ended in 1945, then 20, Anne, the reigning queen of Jitterbug in Riverside, Anne decided to move to Los Angeles to find herself a Jewish husband. And on her second day in L.A., she happened into my father's delicatessen, and after seven dates in seven days in a row, he popped the question. <laughs> and they popped a bottle of champagne together. Perhaps in part because of the impression my father made when he picked her up in his brand new shiny Buick convertible, but more likely due to his warm heart, his generous nature, and his huge smile. So after seven days in L.A., Helen called her mother to give her the good news and heard right back, are you crazy? <laughs> and they weren't crazy. And they were married six, six weeks later. And they raised four boys and spent the next 55 years in love until my father passed away. So fast forward to my early days in Los Angeles in the 1950s, not long after the war ended. Our memory, uh, one memory that really stands out for me from my childhood is how curious I was about the parents of so many of my friends who spoke with thick accents <coughs> and had tattoos of numbers on their arms. Like Mr. Belsberg, the kind-hearted baker who would bring his delicious donuts home for all the kids in the neighborhoods every day or Mrs. Splevin, who owned the local music store 
and insisted on teaching us all how to read music. So I began asking why. And after I asked enough times, some of them started to finally open up and tell me some of their stories. Like Mr. Abram, who owned the local convenience store, which I would visit nearly every day and tell him I was there to buy candy, but I was really there to listen to his unbelievable stories about life in Auschwitz. And I always thought that the remarkable thing about all of these survivors was the fact that they survived. Because the stories they told me of what they had to do just to survive were nearly unbelievable when they were at such young ages. Like having to say goodbye to their families and run away into the woods all alone. Having to accept as normal being hunted and captured again and again. Being herded like animals into trains to death camps. Often to jump out at the first opportunity while the train was moving at a very fast speed. Watching their siblings being shot on the streets in front of their own eyes. Having nothing to eat or drink for days. Arriving at death camps to witness and themselves experience the worst atrocities ever committed on God's green earth. So as I grew up, I became more and more fascinated with the Holocaust and truly just loved to listen to the stories that the survivors had to tell. Only later to understand why so many could not, because they were simply still too painful. Like, for example, the elderly woman that I went to visit in Oslo in 1974, who had only opened 14 of the 15 steel chain locks and deadbolts that she had placed on her door. And then after I introduced myself, would open the door only that wide with her apartment very dark, simply to tell me in a very low voice, there's nothing to talk about. And in that same year, I made my first trip to Israel to work on a kibbutz and tour the country. I visited Yad Vashem Holocaust Memorial Museum and the Museum of the Diaspora at Tel Aviv University. And both of those visits answered answered fundamental questions that I had been grappling with for a long time. At Yad Vashem, I saw pictures and testimonies that documented the atrocities of the Holocaust. And I finally understood why it was so painful for so many survivors to talk about their experiences. And at the Museum of Diaspora, I saw models of villages and communities all over the world where Jews had migrated over a period of thousands of years to escape persecution and create new lives, including in the shtetls like Simiatice, where my father was born. 
I finally understood on a very personal level why it is so important to have communities for our children to grow up in. And I realized that if not for the sacrifice of so many who had come before me, there would not even have been a Jewish culture or a Jewish community for me to grow up in. And at that moment, I made a commitment to myself and to the Jewish people that to, the, to our most cherished legacy of door to door from generation to generation. And my commitment was that during my lifetime, I would make a significant contribution to the survival of the Jewish people so that the next generation and the generation after them would also have a community to raise their children in. And when I returned home to the U.S., I immediately began searching for ways to make good on that commitment. And the journey led to my serving on the founding boards of many major Jewish organizations, my presidency of Kehillat Israel, to the opening last year of the Resnick Family Education Center, housing two Jewish schools in Los Angeles, and to my very proud and meaningful involvement in Lund University's Robinsbrook Archive Project. So dial back to 2013, when I was asked to join the board of the trustees of the U.S.-based Lund University Foundation, and we were looking for our first meaningful project to become involved with. I flew to Lund in January of 2014 to speak at the vice chancellor's launch dinner for the 350-year Jubilee uh, celebration, and I visited the Ravensbrück uh, exhibit at Kulturen and my friend, Professor Hokan Hokanson, gave myself, the Vice Chancellor, the President of the Lund University Foundation, and a few others a private showing of the actual Ravensbrook archive. It was so hard to fight back the tears at that moment, especially when Hokan so kindly allowed me to look through the original SS transport book to see if I recognized the names of any of my own relatives. And at that moment, I knew for sure that we had found our project and that there was no turning back. And as the memorandum of understanding between Lund University and the Lund University Foundation was being signed, I thought to myself... What better way for Lund University to celebrate its proud 350-year history of contributions to humanity and its core mission to create a better world than to undertake this project, which was born at Lund University and will truly help heal the deepest wounds ever inflicted upon humanity. And I am very pleased to report today that the University Library already has completed phase one of the Ravensbrück project and the, and the voluminous thousands and thousands upon documents and artifacts comprised in the archive all have been inventoried and indexed. 
More than half of all the witness testimonies have been translated to English and digitized and all will be translated and digitized by the end of 2019. The University Library's new Ravensbrück Archive website has been built and launched. Major parts of the archive have been photographed and uploaded to the website for public viewing. The website already has been visited thousands of times and continues to be available for others to view at the click of a mouse. And phase two of the project to create a documentary film that can be sent around the world to Holocaust museums and educational institutions is, all, is fully funded and well underway. In the words of the well-known author and Holocaust survivor, Elie Wiesel, for the dead and the living, we must bear witness. To forget the dead would be akin to killing them a second time. Today, the entire world is able to bear witness to the unveiling of one of the greatest untold stories of the Holocaust, what really happened to the women and children at Ravensbrück concentration camp, as told by them in their own words, while those painful memories were still all too fresh for them. And today, the women and children of Ravensbrück finally have been given their voices back after more than 70 long years of deafening silence. Lund University's Ravensbrück archive is one of the greatest missing links to understanding not only what happened at Ravensbrück, but of the entire insidious plan the Nazis had hatched to carry out their so-called final solution for all of the women and children of the Holocaust. Because as I learned when I visited the Ravensbrück camp three years ago, the SS had a broader plan. Not only to do the unspeakable things that they did there, but to then export those atrocities to other death camps where they could be done to women and children as well. The Robinsbrook camp became the linchpin for creation of more than 40 other Nazi death camps for women and children. And the Robinsbrook staff included not only 150 trained female SS guards to take care of the women and children of Robinsbrook, but Robinsbrook had also trained over 4,000 other female SS guards sent to other camps, including the women's camp at Auschwitz, whose commandant was a former head guard from Ravensbrück. It is not hard to understand why this project is so important to the world, both historically and morally. And it is also not hard to understand that for all of us who had the honor of working on this project, it was no casual undertaking. It was a mission. And as it evolved, as it evolved, it became so clear to every one of us that failure was simply not an option. 
we recognized early on the importance of making this archive available to the families whose questions have never been answered, to researchers to ensure that the world truly learns from and never repeats this tragic chapter in history, and even to answer those Holocaust deniers who continue today to attempt to rewrite history so that it, in fact, can be repeated. The archive itself contains a collection of over 500 eyewitness testimonies handwritten in Polish by Professor Zygmunt Lakusinski of Lund University, the courageous and committed professor who interviewed the survivors at the time of their arrival on the white buses, and these interviews are the only known systematic, systematically collected first-hand witness accounts recorded by survivors at the time of the Holocaust. The archive also contains a treasure trove of artifacts hand-carried by the survivors from the camp, including original handwritten prisoner diaries, notebooks, correspondence, original artwork, photographs, drawings, poems, handwritten textbooks they made to teach their children, and even a handmade mirror out of cardboard and glass shards so that these women and children could see themselves again and remember that they once had identities other than the numbers tattooed on their arms by their human captors. In one of the eyewitness testimonies, a survivor described how they risked being beaten within an inch of their lives to create these items because it was their only source of hope. And hope was all they had left. The hope that if their spirit survived, then one day they might be able to reconstruct the lives that had been so cruelly stolen from them. And when the survivors boarded the white buses, they brought these precious items they had created in captivity, each a testament to the strength and the endurance of the human spirit. And that wasn't all. Thirsty and half-starved, they also stopped to retrieve the original handwritten SS documents left behind by the Nazis when they had fled, each of these a testament to the crimes against humanity which had been perpetrated against them. Those fateful words of Elie Wiesel, though not yet written, somehow must have been resonating in the thoughts and most certainly in the heart of Professor Zygmunt Lakusinski. And when he formed a committee, argued his case and obtained funding from the Swedish government and set out systematically to document these firsthand witness accounts, he began to document a chapter in history that could not have, go, have gone forgotten. As more than 21,000 former concentration camp prisoners arrived through, in southern Sweden 
in the spring of 1945, Professor Lakosinski worked as an interpreter to help them get processed and resettled and collected their testimonies. And for safekeeping, he held on to the archive in brown paper bags in his apartment until 1948, when the Cold War was kicking into high gear and the Swedish government feared a Russian invasion and Professor Lakosinski feared that the Russians would take the Ravensbrück archive. So in 1948, Professor Lakosinski signed an agreement to ship the entire archive to Stanford University's Hoover Institute for Safekeeping. The agreement contained a couple of telling provisions worth mentioning. The first was an agreement by Stanford to honor the privacy agreements made with the witnesses that for their safety, their identities and their testimonies would be kept secret for 50 years until 1995. The other provision was that per Stanford's policy, if the archive was not reclaimed by Sweden within 25 years before 1973, that it would become the intellectual property of Stanford. So in 1972, just one year before that alarm clock rang, the professor's son, Martin Lakosinski, then working as the vice consul general of Sweden in the Swedish consul's office in Houston, Texas, sent a letter to the Hoover Institute respectfully reclaiming the archive. And it's returned to Lund. And after it's returned to Lund, the archive, however, was still subject to the privacy agreements made with the witnesses. So in 1995, finally rolled around and it seemed like this long-lost archive just might see the light of day. The university lawyers, of course, then informed uh, the university library that it also had to comply with Sweden's privacy laws, which required the written consent of the survivors or their heirs prior to their publication. And once that hurdle was crossed, all that remained to do was to find the funding to launch the project. And the timing was perfect for the newly formed Loon University Foundation, which was looking for its first major project to adopt. I was honored and excited to serve as chair of this project from the foundation side to create a campaign to raise public awareness in the United States and other parts of the world of the existence of this long-lost archive, to convince the world of the importance of Lund University's work to recover, preserve, organize, and publish it, and to organize a full-scale campaign across the entire United States to raise the funds that were necessary for the project to proceed. As this work progressed, we never grew tired and our sense of mission only grew. And the tears of compassion that had been shed every single time we told the Ravensbrück story 
soon enough became tears of joy when we realized that we could actually do this. There were more than 300 Nazi concentration camps spread all over the German-occupied territories. Ravensbrück concentration camp was located 90 miles north of Berlin in the former East Germany. Between 1939 and 1945, over 130,000 female prisoners passed through the camp, somewhere between 15,000 and 32,000 of all of them survived. Although the inmates came from every country in German-occupied Europe and even from North America and the United States, the largest single national group in the camp consisted of women sent from Poland. The number of children in the camp remains unknown. But what we do know is that between April and October of 1944, their number increased considerably, consisting of, among others, Jewish children who had been brought there by their mothers, with their mothers, after the collapse of the Warsaw Uprising of 1944, and many orphan children whose parents had already perished. And it was a customary practice at the camp that when orphans arrived, that the woman closest to them would grab them and take them and claim them as their own, because those that weren't claimed went immediately uh, to the death chamber. Uh, starting in the summer of 1942, medical experiments were regularly conducted on the prisoners. These experiments were mainly of two types. The first type involved deliberate cutting and infecting of bones, muscles, and nerves, fracturing bones, and introducing foreign substances like pieces of wood, glass, and gasoline into human tissue to study the effects of gangrene on the battlefield. The second set of experiments involved the amputation of healthy limbs on prisoners in an attempt to learn how they might regenerate themselves. And of course, most often they did not. And the medical staff was led by the German physician Hertha Oberhäuser, who was later sentenced to 20 years in prison at the Nuremberg Medical Trial. In the spring of 1945, with the Soviet Red Army's rapid approach, the SS decided to exterminate as many prisoners as they could in order to prevent them from telling anyone what had occurred at Ravensbrück. With the Russians only hours away, the SS forced over 20,000 women on a death march toward northern Mecklenburg. As Nazi Germany was very close to defeat, the Swedish Red Cross initiated the so-called white bus operation sending convoys of buses into areas under, areas under Nazi control to rescue concentration camp prisoners and bring them back to Scandinavia. Fewer than 3,800 
malnourished prisoners survived and remained in the Robinsbrook camp when it was liberated on April 30th, 1945. And on the right is Professor Zygmunt Lakusinski, who, as I mentioned, in addition to working as an interpreter, documented the witness testimonies because Professor Lakosinski understood the importance of collecting the source material that the ex-prisoners had brought with them from the concentration camp. Professor Lakosinski wanted to document the war crimes and the experiences of the victims in a systematic, organized fashion. Aided by the Swedish Institute of Foreign Affairs, the intention was that the more than 500 interviews and more than 5,000 pages pages systematically collected between October 1945 and February of 1946 would be used as evidence of war crimes by courts and historians. It was understood that for accuracy and reliability, the interviews had to take place as soon as possible after the liberation of the prisoners, and the method of collecting the testimonies had to be systematic. After each interview, the transcript was signed by both the interviewer and the interviewee, and since many of the survivors had been transferred from camp to camp before their arrival at Ravensbrück, the interviews also describe events and conditions in other camps such as Bergen-Belsen, Dachau, Majdanek, Sachsenhausen, Nuremberg, and Auschwitz. The interviews are very detailed and many corroborate and complement each other. The archive also contains the personal items and artifacts I previously described, including official Nazi documents such as lists of prisoners executed at Ravensbrück, maps of the camp and the barracks, and lists of which prisoners were assigned to which barracks. It also contains materials from the Ravensbrück trial of 1946 and 1947, when members of the camp staff, including 21 women of the SS, were tried and convicted. In 2015, we held celebration and thank you dinners in California for our West Coast donors and in Florida for our East Coast donors. Professor Hokanson came to California with pieces of the actual archive And he and I made presentations in Los Angeles and woke up early the next morning and flew to Florida to make presentations there. And he unveiled and exhibited for the first time outside of Sweden those actual artifacts from the archive. I'd like to invite my wife, Wendy, up now to come and read some excerpts to you from the actual witness testimonies that also were exhibited and shared for the first time at those dinners on the images that I'm about to share with you. The first is from witness testimony number 111. 
In summer, many transports came from abroad and from Lutz. I saw it. People were coming down from the train wagons, beautifully dressed, with lots of luggage. The orchestra was playing for them. They left their luggage in one place and were taken to the crematorium. And so the transports came day and night for several months. From witness testimony number 112. 300 children brought in sacks by their mothers were in our camp. Those miraculously saved children were placed in special barracks, so-called Kinderheim, fenced with barbed wire. After a few weeks, there was a selection in the camp of the old people, and the Kinderheim was emptied. 300 children, 1,000 elderlies, went to the crematorium. There was incredible despair in the camp, screaming and cries of mothers and sisters. From witness testimony number 139. I especially remember 14th May, 1944. We were surrounded by 200 guards armed with machine guns. Children were loaded onto trucks. The trucks sped past us. The children's hands waving at us from underneath the canvas tops. The mothers ran behind the trucks. The children were taken to Auschwitz. From witness testimony number 113. They snatched the children from the arms of young, healthy mothers, and they sent the weak mothers with children to kneeling group in the square. During that cruel selection, an SS man snatched a child from a young woman because he determined her to be able to work. The husband of the woman, seeing what was happening, jumped at the henchman and hit him twice in the face with the words, My end is now, but yours will come. The SS men arrived quickly. They executed the child first, next the mother, and the brave father of the family last. From witness testimony number 221. 20,000 arrived from the Warsaw Ghetto. Quite a lot from Belisak and Random districts. Several hours, roll call was ordered. Children on one side, mothers on the other. Freight lorries were readied where children were thrown in, given candies to give the impression of a happy departure. But they were all taken to be gassed, then burned. Several days later, the mothers. In that way, tens of thousands were wasted. From witness testimony number 422. I began asking my mother to try to escape because we wouldn't see when they shot us if we were running. My mother didn't want to. I finally decided to do it. I took my little five-year-old sister by the hand and began running. Everyone began racing behind me, and the bullets were whistling through the air. People were falling every few minutes. From witness testimony number 482. In April 1943 came transports with Jews from the Warsaw Ghetto. There were lots of mothers with children. The starved children made a heartbreaking appearance. I remember with horror this scene, the cries of the mother, cries of the wounded, and the brutal conduct of the SS men against the helpless victims will forever stay in my memory. 
from witness testimony number 311. It was a memorable day when Dr. Korzak arrived with the children. Korzak did not want to part with the children. Even though the Germans was willing to let Korzak stay, Korzak consciously went to perish together with the children. From witness testimony number 139. A transport of Jewish families arrived. A four-year-old boy threw himself at the feet of a German, kissing his hands and feet, asking that he be allowed to live. But that callous German shot him right in front of his mother. From witness testimony number 240. There was a roll call at 5 p.m. when my little nine-year-old son was taken away from me. He quieted me down, saying that he was going with other children, and he will take care of them. From then on, it did not, I did not see my son. From witness testimony number 258. I saw with my own eyes a husband and wife jumping into the grave in a loving embrace. I heard a loud Shema Israel. Thank you, Wendy. Perhaps the most remarkable thing about the victims was their demonstration of the resilience of the human spirit, that they were always able to retain a sliver of hope, even under these most unimaginable of circumstances. And out of that hope grew the often heard survivor saying, never again. And as the survivors began the monumental task of healing and reconstructing their lives, another well-known survivor saying also emerged, forgive, but never forget. The Robinsbrook Archive will help all people across the globe to assure that the world does not ever forget, so that never again can anything like this happen anywhere to anyone? And with this in mind, I'm very proud to share with you that the story of the Robinsbrook Archive and of Loon University's work for a better world has been officially recognized and honored by the governing board of the county of Los Angeles, representing 10 million people, by members of both houses of the California legislature, representing 35 million people, and by the Congress of the United States of America, representing 350 million people. As I mentioned, as part of this journey, about three years ago, I traveled to the Robinsbrook camp with a dear friend from Israel, eerily similar to the way that I had toured the Auschwitz camp about 25 years ago with a group of Israeli school children. I wanted to view the camp firsthand and meet with the representatives of the German Brandenburg Foundation which oversees the remains of all of the concentration camps in the German state of Brandenburg. I spent quite some time with Dr. Sabina Rende, their chief researcher and archivist, a lovely person 
who welcomed us and gave us a personal tour of the camp and their museum and their archives. And let me show you what I found. That's the entrance to the Robinsbrook camp. Those are the railway tracks that used to bring the prisoners in on the cattle trains. That is the SS uh, headquarters building at Ravensbrook, which was very, very eerie to walk through on those same hardwood floors the SS had walked through with the Nazi insignias still on the windows when the Russians had uh, taken over East Germany as a satellite nation, they uh, took the Ravensbrück camp, turned it into barracks for their camp, and that was an administ- became an administrative headquarters for the Russian army. That's me meeting with Dr. Uh, Sabinde on the right-hand side and uh, one of the other leaders of the Brandenburg Foundation. That's the wall that separated the prisoners from the rest of the world. That's what remains of the camps, of the camp's old barracks and, and main uh, and main field. That's one of the prisoner uniforms in their museum. That's a prison cell at Ravensbrook as if it wasn't enough to be imprisoned at Ravensbrook, they had a prison for those that needed extra special treatment. That's the site of the crematorium. And that's where the victims and their bodies perished. (laughs) And as we were saying goodbye... I turned to Dr. Arende and I said, you are such a kind person. In an academic who has worked so many years studying what happened here, I I must ask you, how on earth could this ever have occurred? And she paused and looked down and said, I have thought about that very question every day for the last seven years and I just have no answer. And while we may not ever have that answer, the world has learned some valuable lessons that must never be forgotten. Because as we all know that to forget the lessons of history is to risk repeating its most tragic mistakes. We must never again Let the world forget that the only real and enduring way to overcome differences between peoples of goodwill is to build bridges and not walls. And we must never again let the world forget how necessary it is to maintain a free exchange of ideas and a free press and that positive change must come from the force of ideas and not from the force of arms. And we must speak out and not allow the world to be misled by those who would create false moral equivalencies between Nazis and those who oppose them because there are no nice Nazis. 
And perhaps the most important lesson of all, we must remain resolute and always stand together to defend the common universal values that we share and always embrace and protect our most cherished traditions of human rights, diversity, and dignity for all. I have always told my own children that the mark of a life well-led is to leave the world a little bit better than you found it. And in that regard, how fortunate are all of we at Lund University and the Lund University Foundation to have found a calling that has been so transformative that has brought such a profound sense of shared purpose and meaning to so many and that is so clearly one of those rare opportunities in life to help make right what the entire world knows went so wrong. And as I said at the outset, there remains so much more to do, so it is so very clear that our work has only just begun. My friends, I thank you from the bottom of my heart for this enormous honor, for the privilege of participating in this breathtaking project, and for everything that all of you do at Lund University for a better world. Inu ingong til mostia takas o himsmyke for dena enorma era. <laughs>